if you look at franchise values today, I'm pretty sure I'd get a lot more than $2 billion for it. Not that yeah. I'm going to sell it. You know, I, I'm going to own this thing till I, I die and then my family can decide what to do. Point forward. This is Andre Iguodala. This is Evan Turner. We're trying to get to the true essence of not just basketball, but life. And that means something, something, something. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. That level of understanding has been taken out of the game. Of the game. What's up, y'all? Welcome back. Point Forward Podcast. Myself, Andre Godala, My main man, Evan Turner. Yo, yo. And welcome to season two. Uh, we had a, a great time uh, starting off season one. Had some amazing guests. Steph Curry, a lot of Warriors players, uh, some great business folks, Eric Wong from Zoom. We had some uh, great businessmen uh, slash owners uh, in the NBA world, uh, Ryan Smith from the Utah Jazz. We had uh, Vivek from the Sacramento Kings. Um, we had some Twitter space conversations. We had some live recordings straight out of the NBA Finals. Uh, we were at NBA Summer League. Uh, we've just been all over, but uh, we had a great time. Season one, season two. Looking forward to uh, turning it up a notch. Uh, as I said before, you know, season one was more like training camp. Now we're ready to go 74 and eight, if my math is correct, on 82 games. And uh, for those of you who haven't heard us before, this may be your first time listening. Uh, we start off with our topic. So before our conversation with uh, the subject for the week, uh, we we give you um, you know the the current trends going on in the world, whether it be sports, whether it be tech, whether it be business, politics, uh, anything that you know exists in the life of an athlete. Um, being that you know sports is a parallel, pretty much to everything uh, that that goes on with, within the economic space of the world. You know, um, you just saw two athletes leave Donda. And everything that's going on with Kanye West and, you know, there's a sports parallel there. So we're going to jump into some topics, which I truly enjoy because uh, Evan is a very unique mind. And uh, he likes to, you know, I told a line on my end, he told a line on his end. And sometimes we we, we meet up uh, on the same side of the, of the fence and other times we might clash. But uh, this is, you know, my intellectual exercise that I enjoy doing. Week in and week out. Evan, how do you feel about our topics? I'm excited about them. I always think our, our topics are pretty uh, pretty unique, fun, and uh, obviously they're candid. Um, they're real. They come, you know, straight from the for the tinker. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, looking forward to it and, uh, you know, learning more from, from the mind of AI. And I'm looking forward to getting to the, I don't know, I can't, I can't describe your your take on things but it's it's essentially the hard truth i guess I there's nothing it short of a gospel yes the hard truth yeah nothing short of the i love having some prospect and you just been baptized thank you very there much you <laughs> <laughs> yo have you seen an episode of atlanta when they were looking for d'angelo and oh, buddy yeah. took the peanut butter it was sing. <laughs> yeah sure. yeah so I guess the first topic we can kind of discuss is 
Let's start with business. And Michael Rubin was a guest on season one. Yes, sir. And we were trying to break him. He wouldn't break. He kept it very PC. But we've always tried to, we've been advocates of athletes having a stake or ownership in the entities that we partake in. Because we've, you know, we're always receiving, it seems like we always receive a cut of our talents, but we never had ownership of our talents. Right. And, you know, I don't want to go too far because I don't want to have to issue an apology, but some people are trying to tr translate that message, but they're just translated, translating it in the, the worst way possible. Yeah, for sure. And it's coming off very bad and it's coming off very hateful. And so it's hard to get behind it. But, you know, that's something that we've been speaking on a long time. You know, uh, another topic, you know, I want to talk about is Magic Johnson, the things that he's been doing, which is incredible. But Michael Rubin has just announced the latest uh, round of uh, funding and, and uh, newest investors into Fanatics. You know, you had LeBron, you had James Harden, you had Joel Embiid, CJ McCollum's was in there, uh, Odell Beckham Jr. was there. Oh, uh, yeah. And so just, you know, your point of view as he seems like he gave up his minority stake in the Sixers and the Devils. You know, to uh, put more energy, you say, you know, money is energy, put more energy into um, what Fanatics is doing. They got gaming, they yeah. got uh, gambling, and uh, just the the platform uh, that Michael Rubin is building and how he's allowing, you know, uh, current and former players to participate uh, with the growth of the company. I, it's, it's crazy. I think it's crazy how, you know, business-minded is because, you know, what you do when you want to learn more about any industry or anything is to try to go behind the scenes. So mm -hmm. like we said earlier, he's a minority owner, but uh, the weird fact is as famous as he is, you would think he's a majority owner. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And then when you, you know, you move from there, I feel like he's able to force a relationship to get, you know, for the sake of his company and also to build a relationship with the players. Until what they say, when you learn, that's where innovation comes from. So he yes. learned as an owner, and you say, you know what, man, this is good money, and this is cool, and this is fun. But I got an idea, and I got, you know, more financial connects that can allow me to grow and uh, grow my business and use some of their popularity to keep t slowly taking over the world. Because when we talked to them, fanatics, damn near sounded like when we went to your tech event. Back in 2016, I believe you had the vice president there from Amazon or yep, something. Yep, yep. And, you know, he was kind of speaking coy a little bit on what the future held, but mm -hmm. his smirk, his energy kind of told you that something big was coming. Pause. And um, that's kind of what I took from Mike Rubin. The second he said he was out, I'm like, right. There's some money being moved. Right. Mm -hmm. And he spoke about it in our conversation with him in terms of how he's changing the way that he's having interactions and conversations with athletes and entertainers. He's yeah. just saying, you know, I'm talking to little Baby, I'm talking to Meek Mill, and they're actually coming to me in terms of what business deals they have going on or how they're trying to invest. And you hear it in Lil Baby's music. You know, I don't listen to every Lil Baby song. I'm not a Lil Baby head, but I hear it in the locker room and when I'm hearing Lil Baby, he's saying, you know, I stacked this much amount of money away. You know, I'm trying to invest in this. I'm trying, and this is in his music. I'm like, ah, oh. yeah, yeah, it's, it's working because yeah. you know it took Jay Z certain. Jay Z's always been talking about it, but it's kind of like hidden messages. And right. now four four four, it's like, oh, Jay Z's grown up. It's like, no, Jay Z's always been on this, 
but it was just I think it was relayed a different way. People, he was so far removed or so far ahead of it, you know, so far ahead of my time. I'm about to start another life. Look behind you, I'm about to pass you twice. He really yeah. was that far ahead of us. Yeah. But I like it when like a guy like Lil Baby who's speaking directly to, you know, his generation that listen, stacking your money is actually yeah. just as cool as, you know, having ten thousand in sure. your pocket or shooting dice on the court of an NBA game. Yeah. Y'all gotta stop that, please. And a haircut thing too, please. Like <laughs> Yes. That's just right. And if you don't have no hair, why like even anybody like, fool, what you doing? Like dudes is getting lined up bald headed. That's wild. But I told you Aye aye, sir. Yeah, my fault, Kevin. They it'd be a part where he gets you right. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just joking. So, you know, just on Michael Rubin, um, and the and Talk about the players on the cap table, those who have invested in the company. Uh, it was of Mitchell and Ness, which is a subsidiary subsidiary of Fanatics. So I want to get that clear. And the issue of, you know, or the reason why uh, we speak on Michael Rubin outside of, you know, wanting to do, he wanted to get in gaming, which is gambling, uh, which is can be tricky as an owner, although they got ways where you can actually bet on games within the arena. Like they have like, what do they call them? sports booking uh, spaces within arenas. I think the Wizards might have been like the first ones to groundbreak on that. And then um, it was a rule in the collective bargaining agreement that an athlete cannot participate in the same investment as an NBA owner. And uh, I have been one of the, I think I was one of the first ones, Steph and I were the first to our investment came in jeopardy we were investing in TSM, which is the eSports uh, team that we invested in. And uh, a Warriors owner was investing as well. Uh, it's a lot of Warriors owners. And then you're in Silicon Valley. We're all getting the same deal flow, which makes it very difficult. And that's why we're trying to figure out a way to maneuver around that. And um, Michael Rubin, it, was, it, could, it could be, not for sure. It could be another reason why Michael Rubin stepped away because he wanted to, you know, there's a direct correlation with Mitchell and Ness and players, players not being able to cap table. And then you just spoke on, you know, the influence that these athletes have, uh, especially with jerseys. You talk, we talk about throwbacks, like what hip hop did for throwbacks. And then we talk about the Supreme Team doc that was on Showtime and how rappers were dressing like the Supreme Team. And then kind of how that's translated into the culture where we're in today. You know, you talk about Virgil, you talk about Kanye, you talk about any of these influencers um, you know, the heads of uh, yeah. these big brands, um, Balenciaga, and mm -hmm. like we, our culture is making all these things and it's directly coming from our entertainers, whether it be sports or musicians. And um, it's interesting where this is going to go. And then a lot of the conversations that's being out there. But then again, I can't speak too far because. Um, and then I think to stay on the business, top, uh, business topic, Magic Johnson's reportedly um, opportunity to be a part owner of Los Angeles, uh, Las Vegas Raiders. Yep. I keep thinking Los Angeles. They were once there. They were Oakland. The Raiders have been everywhere. That arena in Vegas is amazing. Uh, they've had the same owner for quite some time. I think his dad passed it off to him. But let's just focus more on Magic. It looks to become a minority owner of the Las Vegas Raiders at a $6.5 billion valuation. Uh, already has owned or owned shares in the Dodgers and in the past the Lakers. Um... I guess the question is how many other people have owned business, have owned teams across three sports? Have there ever been a more successful player turned businessman than Magic? And what will Magic Johnson go down most for? 
Like, what would he go down most well known for? Like, what 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 would it be for Magic? Would it be the Showtime Lakers, the ownership Lakers, the Dodgers, or for me to answer the question and I'll let you go? I think is what he built around Los Angeles. We have uh, one of our team securities, uh, Antoine. Um, Tuan is from Compton, I believe. He's from right in that area. Yeah. And I didn't quite understand the magnitude of what Magic had done. You know, he did movie theaters, yeah. and Starbucks, and he was really putting these in hoods. And yeah. then he's got, uh, Magic did the doc on uh, Apple TV. And then obviously there was the HBO Max series as well on the Showtime Lakers. And there's another one too. There's a lot just being thrown out there now. But the one on Apple TV Plus, Magic was directly involved with. And he was saying how he got, what he did was he brought in all the top uh, gang members like who ran each gang and what sets what have you and told them like we came to a truce on my properties and we want these places to be a safe haven and you don't know unless you know someone who's been affected by it because it could just be a good you know PR yeah. push or yeah. you know just something that'd be good to say Antoine is directly from there and he said listen like this is really where we went as like our safe haven like we were going to the we like you hung out at the movie theaters. Yeah. Like that was a spot to go through. You, you knew when it was safe. Yeah, when exactly. be no issues. That's big time. And then you got a whole generation of kids who they can look for another avenue to get out, or not even to get out. Continue to build where yeah. we come from. You know, Rick Ross and those guys talk about building the block. You yeah. know, I think we got to continue to have that message. And I think it, it it sounds like it started like magic was the beginning of like you know, something that we've been trying to do for a long time. We talk about group economics all the time. So that for me is what stood out most about Magic. Yeah. I follow with what you said. I, I think one thing is uh, when people are great, they do it repeatedly. And, um, you know, one thing that he always does is just win mm -hmm. regardless. True. And, um, it's just plain and simple as that. So to be able to be a great player, have that great career, that legendary career, and, you know, go from retiring and be a crazy biz business mogul. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the dude's a winner. And that's why, you know, you hear the term roll with the winners. And, and that's an understatement because, uh, like they say, you can you hit once, you can hit twice. And that's facts. But he hitting. He keep hitting. <laughs> that's, and, and, and it's just the truth. That's all yeah. you need to know. You talk about the ego or the inner confidence. It's like, yeah. who's going to tell you what when you done it? Yeah. You keep and, doing it. And you went further than what? The naysayers have done like learn life. That's that's just real talk. True like. story. Recently, I uh, found out from my mom and a few folks on I think IG. I got some DMs. Uh, I was a question on on uh, Jeopardy. Oh yeah, I do remember that. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was cool. Um, I think you know those are those moments where I can you know I always try to be modest and humble, but those are flexible moments where I can be. Which one of y'all been on Jeopardy? Yeah, that's when you repost to your Instagram story. Like, oh, hey. <laughs> you know, didn't see you there. Now, that's big time. Appreciate it. So the category was uh, sporty books, uh, so not sports. And you and I had a conversation, and um, well, we were in Italy. And uh, a young lady approached me because she, her company just um, pitched my venture capital firm. Uh, to invest in her company, her startup. And you were saying, like, we're in Italy, not America. Yeah. And people are approaching you, not about basketball, right? but about, you know, what you're doing in the venture space. So those things, like, you know, sometimes, like, we need that confidence booster or, you yeah. know, we have a, con have a conversation with a lot of our guests. They're saying, you know, you can doubt yourself at times and you need to be reminded, you know, like, this is who I am. 
Um, and I think that was a super dope moment. Um, but I want to ask you, if somebody asks you right now, you know, like a Jeopardy question, like they ask who was like who was Andre Godala was the answer. Uh, I guess the uh, or that's the question. So, what would your answer be on Jeopardy? What's thirty times thirty? Nine hundred. No, <laughs> no, the the answer would be who was Evan Turner. Oh my bad. I thought you meant like a random one. This guy. <laughs> Make sure I don't we, know. Make sure we put that in the edit. Yeah, put that in the edit because that was uh, one of the dumbest things I just ever said. To be completely honest, I hear this two or three times a week. Yo, I remember I was such and such, and you hit a shot versus Michigan. Oh, Michigan. So like, I literally hear that three times a week. So probably something like, "Who made a shot from here versus?" No, nah, don't do that. I want you to get in your bag. Talk how you talk. You know what's funny? I want. I got to get this story out, and this guy is a listener. I don't think I've told the story. This recently just happened, right? This guy's a this guy's a listener. I know he's listening. He's he I don't he didn't mean he didn't mean any harm. Who is it? But he and I was in a very um I was in a I was in a clubhouse. It's gonna get a story. And that's not gonna get a story away. He knows who he is. And the guy was just like, you know, you're very humble how you talk. And he was like, but Evan, I just feel like Evan always has to remind me of who he is and what he's done in his career. And Normally I would check somebody like that, but in this instance, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of tired. We were doing interviews that day too. Okay. I took time away from that dinner. We were doing interviews okay. for this, and um, but I'm thinking to myself, I actually wish I was more like Evan. And what you say, you preach the gospel. Like you, you speak how you feel, and I, I actually enjoyed it about you. And so, like I was upset. I wasn't upset, but I was kind of annoyed. Like, bro, like. Why can't he speak to who he is? Like y'all didn't respect him. Y'all don't respect him as what he was. But all hoopers know. You yeah. know, we talked to some of our guests. They were like, "Yo, real hoopers know real. Like we know who was real, who yeah. wasn't." No, yeah, but I'll sum it up like this on that theory. Because when I read the Will uh, Smith book, uh, the audio book, Will, and one thing that he said was like, "When you float," and I'm not saying it in any sense because I'll I'll use this statement as my next example. When you float in certain auras, and I'm not saying I was in any sense certain aura, especially not sitting next to you in any sense, but when you float in certain auras, people can't wait for you to come back down. True. And then they can't wait for you to put you right back where it makes them comfortable. We have tons of jokes and tons of runs where I'll go viral for saying something funny or making fun of myself, and everybody snaps at that. Right. But then when I say something that's true, and it's like he's talking about his career, but it's like I don't know what else to talk about because the same way I kept the real on something negative is the same way I kept the real right. on something else. And it's literally, it's not even my truth. It's just the truth. And then we sit there, and for a lack of better terms, I can't argue with dick eaters. Like, <laughs> you just, like no disrespect, Dre, you were just the hate, most hated person seven years ago. And now you're the most loved. It's true. And like literally 10 years ago, I couldn't get unbothered. Like, do you right. understand what I'm right. saying? So, like, when you add that up, I don't have anything else to say besides, like, yo, if I have to listen and I'll listen to somebody speak or I'll listen to an expert, be an expert on whatever they want to do, I'm not talking to you about politics. I'm not talking to you about making cupcakes or none of that shit. I'm talking to you about basketball, something that I did since I was a kid. 
something where it takes 0.3% of the world to do. 0.3. So, like, I wish I was there standing there because I would sit there all day and listen to another person's story about what they've done in life, and they would tell me full-heartedly, and I'd be a dickhead to be like, well, you really weren't on shit. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll tell me at the, spe- at the drop of a dime. Right. So, like, sorry if, like, it's a super Andre fans here because I'm a super Andre fan and everything else like that. It's literally lit. This show is dope. But I can't sit here in the same way, in the same breath. I'll say something bad about myself and it's so openly accepted. And that's just the truth. And then yeah. when I say something good that's factual, what is it? You know I mean, it's a real... All right, let's get back to the topics, bro. We, we were on off. topic. Right, this isn't a topic, topic bro. Was, this was, isn't going on. No, this is lit. I'm not going to lie. There's nothing better than when... There's nothing better than when a Philly team succeeds because you actually see grateful people. You understand what I'm saying? Now, now I hear what you're saying. I mean, that, that, that Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl... I hate Philly, and I felt some type of emotional. Oh, yeah? You understand what I'm saying? Like, when it's right, and obviously you have to give them a reason to cheer, they're going to support you. Just what sucks is if you're not doing well, they're going to tell you that too, which explains the theory of brotherly love. Popping when Philly. Philly's a sports town, bro. I mean, I hate Philly. It's popping. It's popping when Philly wins. It is. Philly, Philly does move different. When they're winning, winning, especially when the Eagles are winning. And I love Jalen Hurts, especially after he left Alabama yeah. after getting benched. I yeah. remember I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember it. <laughs> well, so what was that? That was january That was 2018. That was January, right? That's when the National yeah. Championship game is, yep. football. And I remember David West was watching the game. Like, all of us were like, that was 2018? Oh, we won it that year. We, we went through everybody that year. Yeah, that, was, yeah, a, we, that we, was a waste of a court side. Too. Yeah, we were walking through people. So... I was just telling one of my young boys, like, yo, when we were walking through people, 73 and 9 and the KD years, like, ended the third quarter, the beginning of the fourth quarter, like, the nachos ended. The nachos were stopped being served beginning of the fourth. So I was putting my order in for nachos with, like, two minutes to go in the third because it's a blowout. And I'm going to the back eating nachos. You, be, you was doing that? Bro, I was I was I was on Snapchat. <laughs> I was on Snapchat. I only have Snapchat for my friends. We can just crack jokes on each other. So I'm Snapchatting my friends, sending videos of me watching the game while they watching the game, while I'm eating nachos, and they asking me, How are you how are you eating nachos and watching the game with me and the game going on? I'm like, fam, we up 40, fam. Like, I'm letting my young boys eat. But like that's what we were. That's nah, what we, that's that man. Good for y'all. I'm not mad at it, bro. Like live. Like that's 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 ill. I was just like, damn, you was really doing that. No, like, we were doing it. We were doing it. Y'all only lost nine games yeah. that year. That's yeah, crazy. it was crazy. And so yeah, one of them was to Milwaukee, the old Milwaukee. And not then to us, we we broke y'all home winning streak. Yeah, man. Well, y'all 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 had a good. That's squad. another. Yeah, that's yeah, another yeah. ET joint. Yeah, do your thing. Yeah, broke broke their home winning streak. Forty one <laughs> games. <laughs> On the second night of a back-to-back, that was on TNT, too. And um, whatever fan that was, they had the same energy because uh, I dropped 25 that night and hit big shots. And, and uh, He was watching? No, I only got radio, so they didn't want to hear shit from me, neither. <laughs> 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 so, that was, so I ain't getting national TV. So 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 it, he might be right, okay? No, no you're right. <laughs> but, but I'm saying, we're going back to I because I always go too far, but I'll bring it back. I'm like Mark Jackson. When he gave him one of his uh, sermons, he'll take you somewhere, but he bring you back. So Jalen Hurts. So we were watching... We were watching that game, and David West was watching the game the same time we playing. So he know when he going in, 
But he giving us updates like, yo, yeah. Alabama, they ain't looking good. Jalen Hurts can't move the ball. Halftime come. They switch QBs. They was like, oh, this is this is David West. Like, he into it. He's like, yo, buddy got to go. He got to leave, man. He got to leave because he couldn't go to yeah. the league. And yeah, he was yeah, like, was buddy, over. there's no way buddy can come back to Alabama, man. This young boy. And I think Alabama did. He came back and won. No, they went to they, a, to yeah, a. at halftime. Shorty threw the game winner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they won. And and then yeah. and then we didn't know what was going to happen. So the conversation wasn't even about Oklahoma or Alabama winning the chip. It was about what's about to happen, happen. with Jalen Hurts, which was crazy because he just won a chip the year before, right? And he's three time all, and he just won Offensive Player of the Year for uh, the conference. And that's yeah, like his third it was one. wild. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah, yeah. Then he go to Oklahoma and do his thing. Then he get drafted by Philly, and I'm nervous for him because you know what it's, what time it is in yeah. Philly. And so to see him five and zero is really dope. To see Bryce Harper, who you love, yeah, I'm a Bryce you, Harper. You fan. love Bryce Harper. You talk yeah. about him a lot, and the contract he got from Philly and yeah, how big was it was, yeah. and then he was kind of getting that energy yeah. early on, and you know not living up to expectations. So now to see them in the World Series is like, yeah, the city lit, and you know the Sixers got off to a little bit of a rough start, yeah, but you know fine. they'll be fine. They got a they got a squad. They just got to figure it out, put it together. It's all the sports is really cracking in yeah. Philly. How the Flyers doing? I don't they watch just hockey. started, I think, right? Yeah, I don't watch hockey. Who? Hockey. Hockey. Hockey? Yeah, I nah, the Flyers should be straight, man. Yeah. All lit. street bullies, right? Yeah. All right, y'all. We got a new segment. Uh, we decided to throw a, a wrench in it uh, starting season two. Um, as you know, um, got some exciting things we're getting off our chest and uh, getting a lot of feedback. You know, Evan and I are very close friends, and you can feel the energy uh, when we work together as well. But uh, want to have some disagreements, and you give a close look at how we disagree with one another. And uh, there's going to be some interesting takes, which is what I'm looking forward to. Um, we're calling it Clown for That or Down for That. All right, you you want me to ask the first one? Yeah, you can see that. All right, so Dre, last week uh, the Broncos running back Melvin Gordon mm -hmm. went back to Los Angeles to play versus former team, the mm -hmm. Chargers. So uh, as you know, Melvin Gordon, you know, he has some history there. Uh, he held out during contract negotiations. And, uh, you know, there was some static there when he played. He had great moments, and he also had some staticky moments where he ended up leaving. Comes back, plays his SoFi in front of the fans. They're booing him every time he touches the ball. Mm -hmm. And uh, he only records like eight yards. And um, the big screen, basically, the, the the stadium staff pretty much just clown on. They put a clown on the big board. And um, obviously, he felt some type of way. Really hurt his feelings post-game. He was damn near close to tears. So... In that scenario, are you down for what you know the Chargers did, or is that uh, you know is that just clownish? What you, what you think? I'm torn because on one hand, you know we talked about you know as an athlete you're open for uh, criticism, but at the same time, you know as organiz as billion dollar entities, there's some governance to how you uh exude energy like how you put out that energy how you um what the perception of what you stand for like it comes out right mm. and so the issue here is what's the first thing you hear when you go into the arena just before the game starts you know respect from the fans yeah. is the most important 
respect the players, don't throw stuff on the field. Yeah. And then what's the other thing we're on now? Mental health, right? Yeah. Yeah, it all sounds good, but when you get between those lines, they'll do whatever they can to take you out of your mental space. Yeah. I, I personally think I agree with the fans. The fans are going to do and be who they want. Right. And to a certain extent, I don't think Melvin Gordon personally had relationships with the fan. Of course, he had it with the fan base, but when you break down the organization, so you literally saw those people each day, those people saw you, they used your likeness and image to market and do all that other stuff. And I, I think at least from the past experiences I had with past organizations, I think you try to build a relationship with everybody there. So right. when it comes down to it, it's one thing for the fans not to appreciate you, but people you actually work with and try to build a culture with and they hype up all that stuff to start. It's like, damn, this is how y'all going to do me. I was drafted here. He probably had memories of becoming a man there and everything like that. I, I'm more upset about how the Chargers organization did it more than more so in the fans. All right, I, got I, I think that's I think that's clownish. All right, I got a question for yeah. you. When these type of things happen, do other players see it and react to it? You know, when they see how an organization conducts itself uh, in adverse situations or just any type of situation, whether yeah. it be this one, there's been other ones we've talked about how organizations have handled a situation. Do players keep that in mind during free agencies or do players keep it in mind in terms of would I ever want to be in partnership with this particular group? I think people think of it at first, you know what I mean? But then it's like, you see the Anthony Davis situation. He said he would never go to Boston because of how they did Isaiah Thomas a few years back. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's real, but that's coming from somebody that is going to get a hundred bajillion dollars from everybody. True. So, like, you can see people take a stance, but when that money and that contract on the table, like, <laughs> I, I don't know if somebody's going to stand behind there and really be like, well, this is what they did with the Megatron last year. I ain't finna take this hundred and fifty million, or I'm not gonna, <laughs> or I'm not gonna take this seven million, or I'm not gonna sign in a practice squad. It's like, nah, it's just part of the game. And I think sometimes, in the midst of it, as an athlete, you're used to, you're used to being able to like to take those shots and take those hits and be exposed. And when you hit pros, your feelings are the last thing that matters. True. You know what I mean. So all that stuff goes out the door. True. I'm with you. But Sterling can get a free agent to save his life. <laughs> Who Donald Sterling? Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, but but that was a different thing too because I felt like the culture would attack a lot of people. Yeah, do you understand yeah. what I'm saying? Because yeah. it happens day in and day out. But yeah. that was a big, big story where I think it drew a lot of spotlight on that until obviously he, you know, sold the team. I'm just trying to think of a team who had a bad perception, but just keep getting players. Is there one? I don't know. We got to think about that. I got to think. I mean, not new, new, not the Knicks, no. The Knicks ain't been good since 77. But they get a they get a player, though. Get a Do all they? Star. I mean, I guess Julius. Uh, that's an all-star, bro. They got Melo. E.T. is a good one. Tom Brady. Is Tom Brady, is he a clown for that? Or are you down with coming back to a losing team and losing – 
a, a woman that was making more money than him, and he wanted the richest player in the NFL, which is the most popular league and the most profiting league in America. So that's how much money she got. <laughs> I'll take clown for three hundred, right? No, just, <laughs> no, no, I'm no, bruh. I mean, after year twenty, it gets excessive, bruh. Like it's time to go home, and 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 it's not my business. I don't. I only know the outside looking in. Lord knows I didn't got the low end of the stick before just because men get the low end of the stick. That's a life is what it is. But I don't agree when you break it down with. Uh, I don't know what he's going after. I, I really want to know what he's going after. And I, I think as a father, I'm not trying to tell anybody how to raise themselves or anything. You're right. locked in and your passion is your passion. Right. But I'm just saying, like, you, you've been the GOAT seven years ago. And caught like there's literally video games with you like on it. There's actually two or three video games now that has goat edition. So that's how long you've been on that <laughs> motherfucker. That's a bar. <laughs> like, what else is enough? Do you want to go out on a championship like you did two years ago, or do you want to win a championship and see if you can go out again on another championship and keep going? Sounds familiar. And then like I, I think one thing that occurs is. As as you very well know, with anything you have to have two feet in. So like when you break it down, like time's taking three or four days off a week. It seems like, and that's and it seems as though the team isn't for it or they're not really responding to it. And this is just from a distant eye, right? And we're starting to break that in, and and, and people are starting to. Uh, I always tell you before, like all something crazy happens before a dynasty ends. Yeah. In every situation. Like, you know what I mean? Something I've seen that you've never known. That's when you know it's time to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You understand what I'm saying? And I feel like there's been tons of signs besides the goat signs where you should leave. So I think he's a clown for still like playing. It's, it, it gets selfish after a while, to be honest with you. And so, okay, I'm giving the producers what they want because I disagree. Because I had a very good conversation with a former athlete like Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer in football. He's a big golfer now. Uh, He thinks he can beat me on the golf course. I can't wait to see him. I'm going to give him all the work he wants. But he said, you know, I was explaining to him like, you know, like both sides of it. Like, all right, I'm here, I'm in, but it's like, when is it time to go? Like at some point I got to go. Like I'm trying to get to this space that nobody's been but his response kind of put things in perspective. He was like, listen, man, there's nothing like being on that side. There's nothing like being in the game, competing like that every single day. He was like, listen, you can't replicate that. He was like, man, it's boring over here. And I think we were joking about it when they when they accidentally released Tom Brady's retirement. Yeah. You know, I forgot who it was. They released it. Like their the NFL's version of Woj said Tom Brady's retiring. And he was like, How you gonna Announced my retirement. Like, that's disrespectful in yeah, its own, right? right? Absolutely. But he's also saying I ain't retiring. We also seen it with Serena. I'm just seeing Serena was like, "Who told y'all I was retiring? I'm I'm not retired." Yeah. But you saying the same? It can go to it could be the same case for Serena. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you probably saying the same thing to Serena, but like just hearing that, you know, I'm just saying like it's it's just a, a turn of a chapter. Like he's been the goat for seven years. What else are you going for besides? ruining it yeah well going, I, mean, I mean like you can only go up until it's time to go down so you say you have to leave when you're at the top i don't think you have to leave when you're at the top but after 18 or 19 years dog like i'm straight on seeing you for year 30 that's me personally 
I'm like, I, I just don't know what else, like, uh, besides your happening and your passion and, like, everything. I'm just saying, we're, we're basing off losing his wife or his perceived to lose his wife and his kids. Yes, bro, it's time to go after that. She gave you 20-some years. Hey there, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Ion College Basketball Podcast. And, yes, we are in the thick of the college hoop season. Our pod runs at least three times a week and covers everything you need to know, from the power conference team to the mid-majors, the scoops, the stories, game predictions, previews, huge recaps, everything. We cover it all. To find us, search Ion College Basketball Podcast wherever you get your pods. So now we take it to a man who's actually down to retiring and I hope you all enjoy this conversation as he explains why you know he didn't want to die at the desk and he's doing some amazing things just did a big a, a huge um blessing to the um community um, the urban african-american community in terms of giving back um he's done a lot for the city of Inglewood um did some amazing things in the technology space our opening guest for season two Steve Ballmer. Point. Forward. Let's start off. So originally, I'm a, I'm from the Midwest. I heard you're, you're a Midwest guy as well. You're from, uh, I'm a Buckeye boy, so we call the state of Michigan a school, the state up north. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's talk about that. And, uh, you know, let's talk about your early beginnings, because I realized you were in Detroit back in the day when it was a car town, heavy motor area. So what's yeah. that like? Well... I grew up, my dad was an immigrant. Uh, he came from Switzerland. Uh, after World War II, he went and worked uh, for the U.S. Army as a translator at the war trials at Nuremberg. And then his sponsor brought him to Detroit, where my mom was, who her parents were immigrants from Russia. And what do you do? Why was everybody there? Because there were jobs. Russian right. people had jobs in the car industry. My dad uh, got set up his first job. My first job was working as a hotel clerk and he worked first for GM and Ford. And, you know, it's, it is a company town. Like you said, yeah. I mean, it's a company town, a little different now, uh, but it was certainly a company town back then. So how's your interest in tech come about? Well, when I, I'll tell you how it didn't come about and then how it did come about. Okay. Let me like hear that. it. Let's, I like let's that. Hear it. Yeah. So when I was in high school, uh, I went to a, I went to a private high school that had computer resources at a time. You know, we're talking about late 60s, early 70s. Was well, it Country Day? Detroit Country Day School. Right, everybody Absolutely. goes there out of Detroit. Chris Webber. I know Chris that. Webber. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Chris Webber. Yeah. Jane Battier, Chris Weber. We got we got a few guys out of Country Day. They I think there was a guy at Ohio State, maybe Amir Williams. Uh, Amir Williams, yes, yes. Um, no, nah, so we had computer resources at Country Day. Yep. We had, you know, they were old time sharing. So you type something out, you get a paper tape, you'd run it in. And I took, I took the computer class and guess what? It was my lowest grade in high school. Cause I just hated it. I really didn't like computer programming for me. I was a math guy. I was a physics guy, but for some reason I didn't take the computing. I got to college I took a computer class or two, one class where we had to write a program, as okay. But I became friends with Bill Gates. And, you know, he went and started this company that was the world leader in doing software for these little computers. 
that's that's what I you know I knew and we'd brainstorm about the business and how it would proceed and only through that did I really then start getting interested in the tech world of then you know that's 40 years ago mm-hmm. but then had stayed interested uh not current anymore but stayed interested since it really is cool it re- really is pretty interesting but don't look at me as a computer programmer man I've never written any software that mattered in its life well, what was it that Bill said that kind of got you into it? Because clearly you're Midwest. He's from Seattle. He clearly has some type of correlation where it, it kept your attention. Uh, I took a job right out of college working in Ohio uh, at Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati. And I did not love that. No. Working on, you know, I worked on Duncan Hines, Brownie Mix. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got to say, a little slow, good training. Mm-hmm. So I go back to business school and still in touch with Bill. And he says, hey, he calls me one day. I'm trying to decide what to do for the summer. He says, hey, you know, we kind of need a business guy here at Microsoft. I know you're in school, but too bad you don't have a twin, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I got the message. I got the message. And I stopped and thought Bill was the smartest guy I ever knew. And I like people at Procter & Gamble, but I like the idea of working in a fast-paced new thing. I like the idea of working for somebody that smart. Uh, I like the idea of, you know, kind of being one of the guys because I basically went in next in line past the two founders, you know, Bill Gates and Paul Allen. And all of that, you know, it was 30 people. Company was 30 people. I went to my parents. As I said, neither of whom had been to college. My dad hadn't finished mm-hmm. high school. Mm-hmm. And I said, I- I'm going to drop out of Stanford Business School, and I'm going to go join my friend Bill at his little company in Seattle that does software for personal computers. And my dad said, what the heck is software? <laughs> and my mom said, why would a person ever need a computer? Now, these days, that's kind of funny. But 1980, those were real questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... I struck a deal with Bill. I'll come for the summer. The idea is I'm there full time. But if you don't like me, you fire me at the end of the summer. And if I don't like you, I quit and go back to business school. Okay. And, you know, I got a, got swept up in it. Took me a month or so. The first month was kind of rough for us. But after that, and, I, I, you know, I stayed till I retired, basically, the year I bought the clips. And before I transition to how you bought the the clips. Um, I'm going to be vulnerable right now. I have no idea what the Nuremberg trials are. Okay. But your father was there, I hear. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. After World War II, they took the so-called war criminals, the Nazi war criminals, mm-hmm. the people who had ordered the execution of Jews yeah. and done other things that weren't just military, but they were considered war crimes against humanity. Mm-hmm. And they tried them in this town of Nuremberg in, Ger- in Germany. And my dad was assigned to interpret for some of those heinous people that were being tried for war crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he did. My dad, when he was there, he saw a man hang for his war crimes. I mean, it wow. was a you know it was a serious deal right after the war, and they couldn't use Germans because they were trying Germans. Right. And so he spoke German fluently for being from Switzerland, but it was kind of a crazy time there, and. Uh, 
you know, I'm kind of proud of my dad's involvement. My mom's Jewish. My dad was Christian. But a lot of those crimes were crimes committed against Jews. And the whole thing is, yeah, it's a little emotional, I'd say, for me. And I appreciate you uh, giving me a history lesson and, you know, opening up to that. Um, So, you know, interesting transition. Um, you know, we speak a lot about generational wealth here on the, on point four. We speak a lot about players transitioning from, you know, it's been a lot of talks uh, amongst the players in terms of, you know, what are you transitioning to when you're done with the game of basketball? And then you just talked about how you retired uh, essentially once you bought the Clippers. Uh, walk us through that process. You know, what was most exciting about it? Well, where was your interest at? How did you come about, you know, wanting to get involved? And what was the moment where you were thinking, all right, let's go ahead with this transaction. So I didn't grow up when I was real young with basketball. My dad was an immigrant. He knew soccer and he had learned about American football because he thought, okay, to get ahead of business, you got to know about American football and Mm -hmm. golf. Those were the things he had taught us. There you go. And golf. He saw all the guys who got to the top of Ford Motor Company seemed to play golf. So he, he went out and learned. Uh, My family moved overseas with Ford for a few years. I came back when I was 11 and we moved into a neighborhood where, you know, a lot of kids had backboards up on the, you know, over the garages in the house. And I totally got into basketball. Mm -hmm. I was never any good. I made one no cut team in ninth grade, but it was always (laughs) fun and calming for me to go out and shoot. So I, I, I love basketball. I did stats for the basketball team, some in high school for the Harvard team. I did rebounds and assists in the day, so to speak, when Pete Carrill was coaching at Princeton and Chuck Daly was at uh, Penn and uh, Satch Sanders was at Harvard. So it was kind of a day for Ivy League yeah, basketball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The but, too. You know, I was a fan and I wasn't a fan of the Celtics. I'll say that I was Pistons <laughs> all the way. Uh, but I got here to Seattle, you know, bought my season tickets, uh, after I'd made a little bit of money here at the, at the Sonics and, uh, Paul Allen, who owned the trailblazers starting in the late eighties, yeah. Paul was my friend as well as co-founder of Microsoft. And he kept saying, Steve, you'd love owning a team, Steve, you got to buy a team. <laughs> and I'd been hearing that for years and, but I had a full-time job. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I can't, not only I can I not be, I can't appear to be distracted by this other thing. And oh, by the way, I got young kids and I don't know how it might screw up young kids to have dad own a basketball team because it's, you know, yeah. it's a little weird. Right. So after I retire, I still have one son at home. The other two are launched. And I learned these teams don't come up for sale very often. Right. right. And Paul had been pumping me. He was still pumping me. I went to see Adam Silver. You know, what do I do to get a team to Seattle? He says, that's not how it works anymore. We don't move teams. And uh, he said, go look at Milwaukee. They were for sale at the time. Mm -hmm. I looked at Milwaukee. Owner didn't really want to sell to me. Milwaukee's kind of a far way away. And then, you know, the the secrets of Donald Sterling or not so secret secrets of Donald Sterling were revealed. And I'm thinking about it a little bit. And one day after it happens, my middle son calls and said, Dad, this thing's going to sell. You got to This is before anything other than, you know, the the revelations. Right. And he said, you got to get on it. This is your thing. You got to go buy that team. 
And so I said, this is it. I jumped. Uh, we had failed. We'd tried to buy Sacramento a year too earlier and get it to move to Seattle. And I love L.A. And so I don't need to move any team in L.A. I'm happy in L.A. I'm delighted to be yeah. in L.A. We li- still live in Seattle, but in the wintertime, leaving the rain up here, Evan, you know that from your time yeah. in Portland, getting out of the rain, getting to L.A., getting to a place where I know it's easier to recruit free agents a little yeah. easier than it is in the Northwest. Of course. I thought I died and gone to heaven, Andre. Yeah. Is that, is that, is that, is that yeah. your business side kicking in, thinking about L.A. as well? Mm, a little bit, but really, I like the weather. I like, you know, I like the the sort of the attraction of the place from a yeah. for basketball player sense, and uh, it's turned out to be everything I would have hoped for and more in terms of of location. Right. Uh, I was taught we had a team dinner last night. I was talking to one of our guys, and he said, you know, some players don't like to play in their hometowns. Some do, some don't. But one thing I could tell you, at least this owner probably prefers to own a team in L.A. than Seattle. So I don't have people bugging me at the grocery store. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's true. Was, sorry, was guys, that, I'm rattling. Oh, that's no, all good. But was that a reason why you were like willing to pay 20 cent, 20 percent higher than the next bidder? Were you like for sure once not being able to get the, the super signings before they went to Oklahoma City? Or I believe you try to get, like you said, Milwaukee. You try to get Milwaukee as well as the Sacramento Kings, where you just like by the third time you're like, I'm for sure getting a team. This location this is everything I can think of. Was it a thousand percent like here? Take this two billion and make me make me owner. <laughs> well, one thing I'm going to tell you, because we're in the context of some generational wealth, as Andre said, et cetera. Yes. You don't ever really know how much more you paid than the second bidder. <laughs> right. right. I mean, right. nobody yeah. really tells you you're getting Jimmy Janged along to get the price up. Uh-huh. I had a sense of that the second bidder had a bid at one six, but were willing to go to one eight. That was kind of what I was getting as back channel from, you know, from the investment bankers, et cetera. You know, they're trying to get the best price. And I just decided I really wanted to own this team. Maybe the bid would be one eight or one six. So as you said, I would have been someplace between 10 and 20% over. But I said, look, if we go to 2 billion, we get the same headline numbers they got for the Dodgers, which was which was just over 2 billion, including you know, the ballpark. We didn't get the ballpark out of the deal. Mm-hmm. And I said, eh, that ought to make them feel pretty good to get that big a number. And I figured it would stop the bidding and just let me take it, which as you guys know, it did. And you know, look, if you look at franchise values today, I'm pretty sure I'd get a lot more than $2 billion for it. Not that yeah. I'm going to sell it. You know, I, I'm going to own this thing till I, I die. And then my family can decide what to do. Yeah, that's special. You talk about generational wealth. You know, I like that statement in terms of now my family can decide. You know, I think I think that's key. Um, and, and I wanted to kind of go towards, you know, what was the first thing you did um, as the owner of, of the Clippers, you know, the day one, you know, what are you thinking? What do you want to do? What's your kind of your, um, you know, how do you want to entrench yourself into the organization and the community? Yeah, there's uh, I may get it a little wrong, but there's an expression from John Wooden that was something like be quick, but don't rush. Yes. Yes. That's it. I came from Lute Olsen, who was big. You know, I think he followed Coach Wooden a lot. So I, I got some of, 
the same okay. thing from Coach Williams. That's yeah. the one, you know. It's in that blue little, book. Yeah. Pardon me? I got that one too. It's in that little blue book that everybody reads. Yeah, I got yeah, that too. Yeah. It's, all, it's like the basketball Bible. So I would say what I did was try to be quick but not rush. So what did that mean? I don't know anything about the basketball side, not really. I mean, you know, people are starting to show me cap tables and analytics, but I say, look, on this side, I just have to take my time and learn. We had a phenomenal guy, Doc Rivers, you know, as both coach and uh, head of basketball operations. That's fantastic. I can learn from Doc. I can learn by studying. On the business side, the league had fired the team president when they took the team from Sterling. Mm -hmm. So I had to move quick to hire a great uh, president of uh, business operations, which which I did. She's still with me, Gillian Zucker. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the top women in sports, and I think at the time probably the top woman in sports, which, you know, I didn't hire her for that reason, but she's, she's just phenomenal. And got that locked in. I was a little quick, but not rush on the notion that we needed our own stadium. Yes. I'm not an arena guy. I'm not a real estate guy. I don't know anything about it. Uh, But uh, a buddy of mine from college is a real estate guy. He was a part owner in the Warriors. I think he owned, you know, a small share of the Warriors, a guy named Dennis Wong Mm -hmm. uh, at the time. And he said, you know, I'll sell out, come join you at the Clips. And, you know, a year later, we were out there looking for, you know, looking for a plot of land to build a stadium. Now, building a stadium turns out to take a whole lot longer than I thought. Uh, So we started in 2015, I think, on that project, late 2015, Mm -hmm. and we'll open in 2024. So nine years, Mm -hmm. uh, start to finish. And so on that one, in a way, we were quick. Over time, I feel I'm I'm not a basketball expert. I'm never going to pretend to be an expert. I tell our guys all I could do is see patterns. I can listen what they say and I can echo back what our basketball people say to me and say, well, come on, you told me that before. I have pretty good memory. Yes, sir. And, you know, I can watch and look at patterns and just ask questions. That's my job. And eventually it made sense for, for us to change trajectory. Doc said, I want to put this guy, Lawrence Frank, in to run the basketball op so I can really focus on coaching. Eventually made sense for, for Doc and for me to switch things up a bit. He's got a great job, obviously, in Philly. Uh, you know, we got Ty Lue in as our head coach. And, uh, you know, but that that took me years to try to evolve to where we are today. I'm not a guy who says you make changes fast. I don't believe in that. I believe you commit to people. I think that's key to building a good a good business. And we've had this this team in place now for a number of years. Ty, obviously, just for the last last couple of years. But, you know, Ty's the best, at least in my view. The guy is just the best. I'm so excited to have him as our coach. And Lawrence is phenomenal, I think, as head of uh, basketball ops. Gillian's done a great job. The only guy who really might be accountable for any business problems are me because I'm happy to spend and invest in our team. Uh, So like if somebody would look at the P&L, they'd say, come on, man, this is not a very good profit loss situation. You know, you're you're spending too much money. You know what I say? It's all about winning a championship. That's job one. We'll worry about making money once we once we got that in order. 
And and you said it's all about winning championships. So that's your main goal. Everything moving forward. You hear a lot of organizations say, like, we want to win a chip, we want to win a chip, but their actions speak completely different. So you for sure, you had a couple of chances the past couple of years, but Andre and his buddies ruined it. But you for sure <laughs> want to make it a first class organization. And where do you want to take it towards? You see some of these documentaries like the Lakers and everything like that. Are you trying to build something along those lines? Is that what motivates you as well? Like the legacy? We want to build a great organization. A great organization. You're not a great organization if you never win championships. You can't claim to be great if you never win. You got to have some luck to win. Yes. But you also have to have some skill. You got to have some willingness to go big or you're going to go home every year. Now, I have a lot of respect, for example, for what the Warriors have done. Uh, and yet then you also have to have just that mix of luck. Yes. I could joke around and say the, these guys are a phenomenal team. They were phenomenal last year, but they too get luck, healthy at the right time. Other teams like ours, unhealthy at the, at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. So you got to invest in being great. What does that mean? You got to support your guys. You got to put together rosters that matter, even if they're expensive. You have to support the, you know, the players with the right kind of medical and training and and uh, comfort in terms of travel and the like. That's what I can do. Uh-huh. Yes. You can hire the right people. Any organization, not just a basketball team, if you're the top person, you, you don't really run anything. I don't pretend to run anything. I pretend to pick the people at the top and give them the resources to do their job. So if we do that, we'll be a great organization, but we won't know it unless we win some championships. That's Mm -hmm. the proof is in that pudding. How does that differ from, you know, when you're a CEO at Microsoft and building a gigantic corporation? It's not all that different. People ask, what's the difference between business and, and basketball? And in every detail, they're different. But at the broad strokes, they're not. You know, you have to commit for the long term. You can't just say, eh, we're trying. No, we got to be trying to be a great organization every day, every month, every year, every season. You can't say, oh, this year we're going to float in and go big and we're never going to, you know, we're going to be timid. No, you got to be bold. You got to be big. You got to be committed at all times. You got to get the right people. If you don't have the right people at every job, the right person in medical, the right team, the right coach, you, you, you just can't miss. You got to be willing to make changes when you when you don't have the right people. You can't be static in your mindset about it. You have to you have to be smart. You have to say, OK, think strategically, not let your mind get soft, but be rigorous. Where really can we go with what we have for players and cap space in the future? You can't say, hey, I'm only in this for one year. Is that like business? It is. I'll give you one other way in which it's like the tech business. Mm-hmm. I never understood. Look, I'm not an engineer. I told you that, guys, that up front. I never wrote any software. So all I could do with our software development guys is ask questions. Our software development guys, you know, software people, software development is kind of the what shall I say? The group that needs to be surrounded and supported, they are the folks building the product. Uh-huh. There's a little bit of analogy to 
to yes. the, the coaches and, and players on the basketball side. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I'm not an expert there either, but I got to ask questions, push, challenge. But at the end of the day, I got to trust. I, I've got a question. Um, it's kind of off the whim from what you've been speaking on uh, in terms of like mergers and acquisitions. And I kind of see that as, you know, trading a player or you making a big uh, free agency sign in. Um, what was, what's it like going for a major uh, acquisition at Microsoft and trying to get the the public markets to understand why you did what you did and then having to answer to the media as to why you did what you did? Because I see a lot of parallels in sports being that, you know, now I'm in the tech space, I have my own fun and uh, investing a lot uh, in the tech space. Yeah, you, it's a really good analogy you, you highlight there, Andre. I think that's that's a good way to think about it uh, in many regards. You say, hey, look, we have this unique possibility of changing our business around. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's that really worth? Do we have other options? Are there other companies out there? Is there something we could do internally? I.e., could we do with our own player development or other trades or free agent signings? How does that all come together, fit together? Your analogy is perfect on that one. Let's say you, you, you say, okay, we're going to sign up for a big one. I'll give you the example of Xbox. Mm-hmm. You know, we looked at buying other companies. We said, no, we just got to go in and compete with Nintendo at the time and with, with Sony. We got to go in big. But it's sort of like we're going to go with our own player development. And we made some mistakes. We spent some money, but we stuck with it. Some other times you say, hey, we're going to do a big acquisition. Now, you're right. I don't, you have public shareholders. You're, it's your, you know, it's some of their money. In this case, at least, it's all my money. And so I don't have to explain to shareholders, but you sure have to explain to the fans, to the media, which is similar. And the toughest thing, you also have to explain to your own employees, your own staff, why this is going to be good. Because at the end of the day, it's your own internal people who have to believe the problem is, and I think this might be similar in basketball, it's sure this way in business, your own employees are more likely to believe what they read in the newspaper, so to speak, than they are to believe what you tell them. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, because they trust the random. So, so so trust- <laughs> why would I trust so you? More. I know you more. <laughs> uh, we, had, we had Colin Powell in, you know, uh, former uh, – head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Secretary of State, we had him in one time to talk to the Microsoft exec staff. And he really explained every time he went and said something publicly during the Iraq war, he said to myself, himself, I got 14 different audiences. Mm. I've got the enemy. I've got our allies. I've got Congress. I've got our, our troops. I've got the family of our troops. And I, I won't remember all of them. Right. And he said, you gotta be speaking to everybody. And including your own troops. And that's that's kind of how it is. You're talking about trusting, you know, trying to the audience who you speak to after a whole Donald Sterling situation, everything. How how did you approach to gain trust amongst the players and then literally everybody around the basketball world? Because not only did that situation kind of, you know, stain for the moment, but it, it has some leftover aftertaste where I felt like even when you came in, you had nothing to do with anything. And people are still kind of, I'm sure, giving you eyes both ways and like, yo, you, how are you going to fix this? And like you said, be quick and everything, but you have to fix it fast. So how did you get people to trust and stay on top? Like you, you, you guys 
competed damn near every year for a championship, you know? Well, I think number one, let's let's acknowledge that I had a low bar to climb over. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I appreciate that. Being quote better than Sterling, probably not the hardest thing in the planet. And so I I highlight that because it was an important transition. But as long as I was stable, steady, consistent, what I would call a, a good human being to contrast from Sterling, if I was all the things that I needed to be and I supported the guys who were there, I supported the guys who were there during the Sterling side, whether it's players, coaches, you know, I acknowledged that people had done right to express themselves. Uh, I won't call any of this, you know, sort of very clever. It's just doing, you know, doing the basics. And, you know, I would say that first year or two, that's probably what it was. After that, then you're shaking the stigma, not so much even trying to prove myself, but then you got to, you know, it's taken a long time for that Sterling saga to go away in terms of how people think about the Clippers every day. Yeah. I think it is mostly now in the past. It doesn't, it doesn't mean people forget, but it's not right there at the front of the front of the brain all the mm-hmm. time. We thought about changing the name of the team. And that was a serious consideration. Mm. You know, say, hey, maybe we need to reboot all together, so to speak. And you know, our fans didn't want that when we do our little surveys. That would not have been considered fan friendly. Right. Um you know, sometimes they say all PR is good PR. I don't know if that's true, but the Clippers got to be a much better known name as a result of this Sterling thing. Yeah. So we decided to sit pat. We switched the logo. We did some kinds of changes, mostly cosmetic. And then I said to myself, the only way really people acknowledge it is you just build the best organization you can. You, you show, whether it's players or coaches, that this is a good place to work. Mm-hmm. People come to appreciate that, I hope. And then you go win a championship and people forget that history, I think, pretty fast. But um, that that's kind of how we took it on. Well, how does the league ensure, because obviously it took you a while to become an owner, have you ever thought of ways the league ensures that the right people are taking leadership and the right owners are in charge? Because that's like a domino effect, because if you had the right type of person that cares about everybody, then that helps with the philanthropy cases and so on and so forth, where you build a better organization that takes care of what you say from the start to players. Yeah, obviously, the league has uh, veto rights over any potential owner. Yeah. You know, they do background checks and, you know, you can't reject somebody capriciously. On the other hand, if if there's you know sort of red flag, you can reject someone. Now it's harder it's harder to reject if the person's not a good person, you reject them. But it is always hard to reject the highest bid, right? Right? Because if you're a current owner, you say, hey, look, if they continue to force people to take low bids, my franchise is worth less. Right. So you want the best people you can to bring in the highest bids you can. But you can assure that somebody is philanthropically active. I mean, that is not, hey, we're not going to approve this unless you agree to give away a bunch more money. Doesn't, you know, that 
that doesn't work. Now, I think all owners have been blessed, whether it was blessed by what they had before or in these franchise values that we see today. I think it's a good thing to give back, for example, philanthropically. Happens to be a focus for my wife and I anyway on what we call economic mobility. Kids and families were basically because of where they were born and, you know, whether it's color of skin or the poverty of the parents, the kids just don't have the opportunity. And so we say, hey, how do we make a difference in kids' lives philanthropically? But but I, I wouldn't want to force that on another owner. I would just hope for it, if you will. Yeah. And, and, and so we have a segment called Guns and Butter. And most people think about it, they think about it from a, a macroeconomic principle, you know, but our segment is from the movie Baby Boy. And, and we talk a lot about how culture and African-American culture has entrenched itself into the sports world and how everyone's been, you know, there's community behind it. There's a lot of, you know, uh, wealth creation behind it, uh, but that we don't participate in it as much. But what being Rames was basically saying, there's, you know, there's the assets and there's the liabilities. And so it's more micro decisions um, that come from, you know, how our life pans out. And so with that being said for you, can you recall any any decisions that you've made, which, though, at the time seemed, you know, minor, or even forgettable, they've proven to be very pivotal to you? Yeah, I'll give you a couple. Uh, I was in the public school in my neighborhood in eighth grade. Uh, my family, my dad had gotten sent overseas. We were back and I'm sitting there in the band and the PA system, you know, they used to put out the announcements, maybe still do over the PA system in the high school or in the middle school. And they say, hey, there's a scholarship test being given at this fancy private school, Detroit Country Day. Sign up if you want to take the scholarship test. So I went home and said to my mom, I'd like to do this. She said, well, you better get a scholarship because we can't afford it if you don't get a scholarship. I like that. So I sign up for the test, you know, do well, do well in my interviews, get a scholarship. That really did change my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, my parents didn't go to college, but they pushed going to college. I was fortunate that they had that lens. But then I was given this kind of, you know, random opportunity, gift from the gods, if you will. And I was lucky and I seized it. And that's where I really was able to get into math and, you know, the kinds of things that let me go to Harvard. At Harvard, I met Bill Gates. That created the opportunity to work with Paul and Bill and build Microsoft. So a little good fortune, but it comes out of putting yourself in these opportunities. Right. And, you know, I had them. I know it. not everybody even has that kind of opportunity, but when they're there, you just kind of, you got to be able to listen and read them and, you know, probably a little easier, certainly a little easier for me than for some folks, but I think it's really, really part of it. The other part of it is just, you know, helping people get into those positions, right. people being able to be ready for kindergarten, to be able to read well by, by third grade, you know, people to have things to do after school so that they don't get involved in knuckleheaded after school activities or, you know, there's just a variety of things that are important that my wife and I see. Uh, I'll give you a good one. An African-American boy who's had at least one African-American 
a male teacher yep. does statistically better in life yep. than if you didn't. So my wife and I are investing in scholarships and support to get African-American males into teaching because we think that if that can help, because boys struggle, white, black, Latino, boys definitely, you know, struggle more than girls. They do better. And, uh, you know, how do you how do you get some opportunities? Yeah, I was supposed to be a a math teacher Uh, that happened because my pre-calculus teacher, Miss White, um, who told me. Uh, you, there no, there aren't, there aren't many African American male teachers, and there's a shortage, and so I had no idea I was going to MBA, and so I was just, you know, fortunate to go to college, and uh, education was going to be my major before it changed to basketball. Uh, but that was for that specific reason. So I appreciate you, you know, uh, sharing that. You wouldn't have been a forward to live. <laughs> don't nobody know where I live at, bro. No, my fault. I'm just saying, like, shit, that's a crazy. How you gonna invite a kid to take that job? Like, hey, you wanna? You got a point. That's you part know, of the problem. People gotta want to be teachers, like you know, Andre. If, I, yes. if my kid came home, like, I want to be a teacher. I'm going up to that school and be like, hey, bro, until you get the pay you deserve, don't tell my kid none of that. <laughs> okay, no, I'm, I'm gonna sorry. I'm gonna pounce on that one a little bit. No, I want to hear it. Talk to me. Tell me. I want to know. Yeah, I'm not gonna say teachers get paid enough. I'm not gonna say that. Okay, but teachers do get paid okay relative to a lot of other people. Okay, I wouldn't the, know. I just hear in the United States, the the middle wage is about thirty eight thousand bucks a year. Mm-hmm. A teacher gets paid on average in the U.S about 65,000 bucks and the teacher has better retirement benefits much better than ever i mean if you look at retirement benefits for teachers they would be much better than they would for anybody from microsoft even though microsoft right. employee would make more yeah. than a teacher and have to save so i'm not arguing that teacher is a super well paid job but it is a lot better paid job than most people in america get and I'm not, that's not what I'm, um, oh, no, really for your kids yeah. or, or anybody yeah. else. I'm just trying to say teaching's a good profession yes. and relative to a lot of jobs, it pays all right. That's my, my, uh, what shall I say? Pitch. We need more good people going into teaching. So I'm, I'm selling. Yeah. And you get summers and Christmas off. So what, what else could, what else could matter more? You know what I mean? I got to tell you guys, you may not know this being NBA players, but the rest of the world gets Christmas off. It's just NBA players. Yeah, yeah. And coaches especially especially and the good teams. No. And, and also too. Yeah. We're I, not, yeah, I'm not going to yeah. get into the fact that I think the clip should be playing on Christmas <laughs> this year, but we're we not. had a, se- we had a segment it's, about yeah. who should be playing on Christmas and the Clippers mm-hmm. was a team we thought should maybe I'll talk to Adam and see if point forward can set the Christmas schedule. Yeah, going that'd forward. be worth it. We, 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 yeah, My wife's okay with it, though, this year. She likes the idea of him doing something other than basketball at Christmas. One thing that's, that hurt my feelings when I first hit the lead for Christmas was uh, I thought we got holiday bonuses. And, like, <laughs> he did. I, and I literally was like, bruh. Good. I need some cheer. We get a holiday bonus. And I'm like, so what's the bonus? They're like, you don't get a bonus. It's your paycheck. And I'm like, maybe for Christmas, you you work that in, Steve. I, I think I think uh, rookies would appreciate that. You know what I mean? We get like and ironically, if if the if the team gives you something, the owner gives you something worth over 500 bucks. 
it would be a violation of the salary cap rules. So there you have it. I think it's 500 bucks max or something like that. I know we were able to do Xboxes one year, but maybe it's a little less than 500 bucks. So that Christmas bonus, it's maxed out. That's no, I hear. I'll just take some time share at your spot. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but uh, going back to what you're saying about being a teacher and you know the salary and you know everyone has dreams of what everyone wants to be super successful. Everyone wants to be the CEO. Everyone wants to lead a publicly traded company. You know, want to be uh, uh, in the media spotlight every se- single day. Not understanding what we go through, the downsides. You know. I, you went through it a lot being a CEO of Microsoft. What's right, what's wrong. And most of the time is what's wrong. It's never what you're doing right. And we all know that from our experience as athletes as well. Uh, financial pressures from families and friends is a big one for us. Time constraints, you know, being being in the public eye and, you know, just expectations of more greatness. So with, with, with all that, you know, people not seeing that, you know, are there still, you know, pressures or, uh, you know, do you get anxious or you still or do you still get stressed or what do you remember from those times or, you know, now are you relieved from it all? But just talk about what you went through. Yeah, no, it I I in professional, there's a lot of stress and it comes from all the kinds of things you were talking about. And if you're a CEO, it comes from the pressure of your own employees. They want to feel positive about their jobs. They want to feel secure economically. They want to feel like they got opportunity, which is something that when you manage a lot of people comes in on top of everything that you talked about that you see as athletes. Mm -hmm. Now, athletes have a whole bunch more things because you're more recognizable. And especially basketball players are more recognizable. If you wear a helmet all all game, you're a little less recognizable than if you're a basketball player. I mean, if if you think about it, Um, so, you know, you do have those stresses now, professionally, I think I dealt with them. I think I dealt with them pretty well. I was able to stay an even keel, see the path forward. I made mistakes. I got a lot of things, right. There's a reason why Microsoft went from 30,000 to almost 90,000 people. When I was there, our profits were up over about 30 billion a year from being about a million a year. So we did some stuff right. We made some mistakes. I was able, I took over CEO in 2000. We had our biggest growth spurt in those last 14 years, although the company's doubled again since I left in the last nine years. Mm -hmm. But there is all those stress. If you're me and you go to the grocery store or you go to Costco, people recognize you because a lot of people work for you Mm -hmm. and you have have those, those issues. You know, outside of work, I probably, um, probably, I was certainly, I spent time with my kids' activities, but I wasn't always present. I wasn't always being who I wish I had been. And knowing what I know now, maybe I could have dialed that a little differently to be good at both. Yes. I don't have that kind of pressure on me now. Why? I don't actually run anything. I own a business. And that business is run by other people and I support them, but I'm not in there every day. It's not like I have a, you know, 60 hour a week job running the clips. I don't. I started a website that publishes government information. I'm not on it full. USAFacts.org. I'll sell it to your, to your listeners, but 
you know, I don't run that every day. So I don't have the stress of that every day. Our philanthropy, yeah, I'm a little, a little closer to, but man, it is really hard to evaluate what you're doing philanthropically. So there are stressors. They're a lot different than being a professional athlete or a former a CEO. Um, I'm a shareholder in Microsoft. You know what it means to be a shareholder in Microsoft? It's a little bit like the Clippers. When it's game day, all I can do is applaud the company or applaud the players. I'm not, you know, I'm not in the middle of the arena, so to speak. Mm. Um, so yeah, life's changed. Better or worse, I don't know, different phase of life for me. And I wanted another phase of life. Try out something else. I didn't want to work at Microsoft, you know, till I was 75 and then die. So mm -hmm. that was good. I loved it. I really loved building Microsoft. I mean, people say, what will be your achievement? I think my number one achievement in life will help was bringing computing available to the masses. Now, I hope we can do something that good through our philanthropy. I hope we can win a championship, but there's nothing quite like saying, hey, look, we made computing available to the world because I think that was such a powerful contribution to make. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. And so I guess in closing, you know, this is from me to you, my closing statement. And I just want to say thank you for the time. Uh, just hearing you speak from what you experience and, and what you've done and the investments you've made in Inglewood. You know, my roommate was from Inglewood. So I understand, you know, the importance of Inglewood, the importance of, you know, you got every, um, you know, you got every uh, financial part of the pyramid in Inglewood from an African-American standpoint, you know, you got the high end, you got the middle class, you got the low end. So, you know, and most folks come in in terms of they change the African-American community around for their benefit. And so I've saw, I've seen, you know, your investments to this, to the actual, you know, core of Inglewood. And I hope we continue to see that more and more. And to, to expand on that, you know, no person is, you know, an island, you know, all of us are on a stage and uh, all of us are in this room because of the decisions that we made. We've all been kids and we've all gone to school. We've gone to college. We're fortunate not to hang out with some folks we shouldn't have been hanging out. And, you know, uh, you know, ET and I have talked about this many a times. And for me, it was Boys and Girls Club. And there were certain individuals that let me know, like, hey, Andre, you're different. So make sure you don't go with them to certain places. And I kind of remembered that growing up. Uh, so for you, you know, can you think back to that one person who, you know, meant the most to you or kind of gave you some some tidbits that kind of kept you on the right track or, or gave you the proper perspective to be successful in life and why? Yeah. Uh, can I can I give you two people real quick, if you're OK with that? Oh, for sure. I'll give you two. Um, the first, uh, I would say, is my dad. My dad was a bit of a wacky guy. I'm not going to say he was an easy man to be with. Uh, I love him dearly. But he had an expression he used, which meant, I, I repeat it. It means nothing and it means everything. He used to say, if you're going to do a job, do a job. And if you're not going to do a job, don't do a job. Like, kid, either be serious or, or just get out of the way, which to me was a message about being serious. I got that from my dad. Um, all right, I'm going to give you three. From my grandfather. My grandfather was an immigrant 
from Russia. He had been in the Russian army nine years as a Jew. They didn't like Jews very much in the Russian army back then. From him, I learned what it, it, you know, he didn't finish second grade. He grew up in, you know, sort of a house that had dirt floors. I learned from him that you got to be rugged. And he was a, a great, nice man by the time, you know, I knew him, but he'd gone through the ringer a little bit. And it's it's something about resilience, which I think applies to everybody, but I saw a little bit of that. But the guy who probably falls more in the category you meant is Mr. Coos, who was my ninth grade math teacher. Mm-hmm. And I told you I'd gotten the scholarship and I was going to this new private school and I got there and guess what? I was behind in math. All the other kids in ninth grade were taking algebra two. I was mm-hmm. taking algebra one. And, you know, this happened to me in second, in, in third grade, second grade, my new teacher, when I moved to Europe, told me I wasn't very good at math. And so I practiced all summer and I got really good and they skipped me out of third grade. So now I'm in a new school and I'm behind in math. And Mr. Koo says to me, kind of like you were describing about the people at the Boys and Girls Club, he says, I have faith in you. You can do well in math. How about I help catch you up? We'll do algebra one and algebra two, both ninth grade. I did. He said, I think you're pretty good. You got to go to this summer math camp. Some of the best and brightest in the Detroit area are going to be in this summer math camp. I went to summer math camp. The next year, I took three math classes because he had got me all stirred up. And then he says to me, look, I'm doing my master's in math down at Wayne State University in Detroit. You're not going to get everything, but why don't you ride down with me to my class on Wednesday night so you can get an exposure to college math? That is a real investment by a teacher and a student. It got me all flamed. And look, math was my ticket to college. You know, everybody's got their ticket. That was my ticket. And if it hadn't been, you know, I I wasn't going to have a bad life. I'm not going to argue. I would have had a fine life. But my life was materially impacted by that ninth grade teacher, Mr. Coos, who, by the way, was out in Seattle summer before this one. And I had a drink with him because I can call him Ted now. He's not Mr. Coos. He's living in, you know, outside Cleveland, Ohio, that Ohio connection again. <laughs> and, uh, but, it, you know, he did change my life. That That's amazing. That's a, that's yeah, an that amazing dope, story. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I, was I, two, yeah. It was even two cooler parts. Your teacher invited you and you actually went because most dudes went. <laughs> Like, man, no, I'm not. I'm not going. I'm straight. I'll just fail. <laughs> well, I didn't have to pass his class. I just had. I had to ride down with him, be not, you know a little bit confused, and ride right. back with him. But he spent all that time talking to me too. Yeah, and nurturing me. And like I said, I was going to have a decent life, but he helped accelerate it. I wouldn't be here, I don't think, if it wasn't for for Mr. Cooth. No, but we we talked about this a few times already, you know, time, in terms of like the small decisions you make that make have a big impact on your life. Like you decided to take that chance. And I think that's what we're trying to get, uh, you know, not, not just our youth, but even like some of my young teammates. Like, hey, like Kevon Looney went to a, um, a Morgan Stanley um, uh, uh, SAS event with me. You know what I mean? And uh, we're meeting... Uh, we're meeting pager duty, you know, we're meeting, um, 
who else is there? Uh, GE was there one year. We mean all the top up and coming SaaS companies um, and, and from from that world. And you know, his first hour, he's he's ready to take a nap. Like I, I need a nap. It was too much information. <laughs> but when he left, he just learned how to, you know, interact with a different type of businessman. And uh, he's gone on and did uh, internships. Uh, he did an internship with Warner Music this summer, and he got to learn understand oh. how budgets are made for music albums and. Um, he's really into music. So we just got to continue to open up our palettes and, and, and explore new things. So uh, I'll give you that- another example of a guy who's who's kind of like you and like you described. And that's Bobby Wagner, who was playing for the Seahawks yeah, and yeah, now yeah, plays yeah. for the Rams. Mm-hmm. When he was up here, he's networking. He kind of had me mentor him a little bit. The lady who's uh, chief financial officer at Microsoft, he was looking to learn, build that network for his post. And, and I know he's doing the same thing now that he's down in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, it's impressive to to see folks do that. Now, I'm going to make a look. I'm not allowed as an owner to say anything to any player financially, but I'm still going to say one thing. All those investments you might make in SaaS companies, don't go up against Microsoft. Do not go <laughs> up against Microsoft. <laughs> because I'll be rooting for them all the time. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. So I'm, I'm not going to get you in trouble. But anytime I see Microsoft make an acquisition, I'm going to keep a close eye on it. I'm just going to say that. Or, or if any of my, any of, uh, I invest in uh, uh, pre-CC, Series A, Series B. So as it goes further and further, companies do really well. Those SaaS companies, you know, I know where to call. If there's any, um, if there's any value on both sides in terms of a merger or acquisition, let's just keep it at that. And by the time that happens, I'll be, long gone away because you know these investments they're you know they're seven to ten year tracks uh on average so we'll leave it at that keep us all safe from the nba and it's uh collective bargaining agreement (laughs) but thank you so much man appreciate the time i know you're super busy um you know best of luck with microsoft best of luck with the clippers this year unless they're playing the warriors and uh once again uh thanks for the time well thanks guys i appreciate the opportunity i also think you guys have one of the most clever podcast names of all time. I love it. And uh, really delighted that you guys both had me on here. Pleasure. Appreciate you, Steve. Take care. That's a wrap for us today. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you follow Point Forward on YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, or wherever else you social your media. We're on, we're on Pinterest too, right? Pinterest too. There we go.